Hello and welcome to episode three of the Gladstones Land podcast brought to you by the National Trust for Scotland. Uh, I'm, I'm Thomas. And I'm Kate. And we're here again in the Gladstones Land cellar. Um, today's episode is... Today's, the, the title of today's episode is, is Gardy Lou. Uh, uh, and we'll 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 get to that in a bit. But um, how's uh, um, well? How are you? you know? I'm good. Um, yes, we are still working on the property at the moment. Um, we're in the midst of uh, all sorts of DIY projects. But yeah, good. Um, I'm looking forward to a little diversion today while we talk about some social history instead. Yes, that should be good. We, um, as I said, the t- t- today today's episode. Uh, the title the title is Gardy Lou Everyday Life in Old Edinburgh. Um, and I've got a clip to start us off with, uh, a clip from uh, f- from the tour, uh, uh, which we'll, we'll just listen to now. Going back to the water, the water would be brought by water carriers at this point, and the servants would have to go downstairs to collect water from them. There's no sink in here, so I don't think very much washing of anything would have gone on really in the property because there'd be a limit to how much water the servants could bring in. And then down here we have the toilet in the kitchen. Um, There would be chamber pots in the rooms. They would be emptied into this, which was called a clothes stool. And the rule was that at night, the contents had to be taken downstairs and they would be taken away by the soil cart men. Now, you may know this already, but now and again... The contents went out of the window to the cry of Gardilou. Gardalou, look out for the water. The contents would run down the walls, it would run down the streets, sometimes it landed on people. Occasionally, if you were walking past this window, this is a good one because it's quite secluded, you wouldn't have thrown it out the front window probably. Um, you could shout, Hud your hand. And hopefully the person would just wait a moment till you'd pass. But I'm sure somebody would have got a, a deluge. That was a clip uh, from one of our tour guides, Evelyn, uh, talking about the uh, disposal of water in in, in old Edinburgh. <laughs> Rather more than just water. Um, so, uh, uh, so, Kate, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to... So last week we talked um, about uh, sort of the setup, how Gladstone's land fits into the wider picture of 17th century uh, Edinburgh. Today we're going to look a bit more at the social history. We're going to look at the way uh, the rich and the poor people were living at the time. Sanitation, of course, which we've already discussed. and We will be discussing more later. Uh, and um, a little bit more about basically how people were conducting their lives. And um, I, I chose this clip um, because it, uh, and indeed the, the, the title, because for some reason, I wonder what that reason is, uh, Gardy Lou and the disposal of, uh, of um, the contents of the chamber pot is one of the most popular stories to be told <laughs> about uh, everyday life in Edinburgh, isn't it? Whatever tour you go on, um, everybody always uh, talks about Gardy Lou. But I think in some ways that's actually quite useful it's very it's it's very illustrative of what life must have been like isn't it it tells you something about the overcrowding uh about the closes how they had these very long narrow streets with very high buildings how you had people living on top of each other very much so and it tells you a little bit about probably how bad well 
how bad Edinburgh would have smelt at the time. There's a reason it's known as Old Reeky. Um, it's simply with this many people in such a small space, there's and nowhere really for a lot of this this refuse to go. Um, Edinburgh was an incredibly smelly city at this period. I sometimes wonder whether this was a particular problem in Edinburgh or whether you whether all all medieval and early modern cities were were smelly um well i think they were all smelly i think we should definitely say that i think perhaps it was worse in edinburgh um because obviously it's one of the most densely populated cities in europe at this period so there's just a lot of people in a very small space and on top of that with the houses being so close together um, there's sort of less space for a lot of this waste to go so although we suspect this sort of thing was quite widespread edinburgh for some reason has uh, part of its uh, reputation is 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 for being a, a city where this sort of thing was particularly bad as you said the, yeah. the city's nickname or one of the nicknames is old reeky or you know old smelly is reeky smelly yep, smelly <laughs> and uh, and so so this this nature of it being over densely populated overcrowded uh, cramped all of this is a, a huge uh, aspect of, of the city's history. So whenever we are in this and in future episodes, when we're talking about the high street, uh, Gladstone's land, all of this sort of thing, we have to imagine full of people and uh, extremely crowded, mm-hmm. noisy, smelly, all that good stuff. Um, today, we've, uh, we've, got, we've, um, we've got an interview with, with one of our, uh, our tour guides, David, I I went on his tour um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, we'll continue to hear clips from his tour throughout the series. Um, but uh, so so without further ado, let, let's move on to to David's interview. Indeed. Right. So we're here sitting with David Hamill, who is. Uh, a National Trust volunteer and and also a former history teacher, one of our one of our most popular tour guides here at Gladstone's Land. At least that's what I've heard. I, um, uh, you, you, I couldn't you... possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we're we're talking today about everyday life in Old Edinburgh. And I suppose the first thing to ask really is so very simply what what would it have been like to live in Edinburgh in 1635. I think that would have depended to a large extent on uh, how wealthy you were. I mean, if you were poor, I think life must have been pretty tough. You would have been living in probably no more than perhaps one room. Uh, You might be sharing that one room with any number of other people. Uh, If you were the poorest of the poor, you were probably living in the cellars. Uh, The cellars were horrible places to live. They were damp. Uh, They were rat-infested. Uh, and whenever it rained, of course, the rain would then sweep in off the streets, uh, all the muck that was lying there. And I mean all the muck that was lying there, uh, because of the amount of animals that there were around, because of the tendency for people to throw excrement uh, out of the windows. Um, much of this would be lying in the street, and a good rainstorm would sweep a lot of that into the cellar. Mm. The cellar would have been, indeed, I mean, a horrible place to live. I suppose it's good to note that we're currently sitting in one of those cellars. <laughs> we are, indeed, <laughs> yes. True. Um, I suppose, again, I mean, in these tenement buildings, you know, the rich and the poor, they mixed in together. You know, we're accustomed to the idea nowadays that, you know, if you, you live in a town or a city, that the, the wealthy tend to live in one area, the poor tend to live in another. 
Um, and although to some extent I suppose the lawn market was the, the posh end of the high street, that didn't mean that the rich and the poor didn't mix in together here as well. Um, the attic rooms, I mean a lot of people look on you know, rooms right up at the top of a building like this as being like you know, the penthouse suite or something like that. Um, well, you really wouldn't have wanted to live in an attic room at this particular stage in, in history. The attic rooms were very, very small, the ceilings were low, they were very cramped conditions. And again, you know, if you lived that far up in a tenement that were perhaps nine, ten stories high, uh, you're up and down those stairs all the time, and there's one very, very serious risk in living that high up, and that's fire. Uh, there's in many of these tenement buildings possibly only going to be one turnpike stair, uh, that's the only way in, it's the only way out. If a fire breaks out, then basically you're toast. Fires in those times, I mean, there was no such thing as a municipal fire brigade. Mm. Uh, basically what happened was that, um, in fact, insurance companies used to employ their own people. And if there was a fire, they would send the people out actually to try and put the fire out. By the time they'd done that, usually a fire was out of control. It was too late anyway. But in fact, Edinburgh set up the first municipal fire service in Britain. Uh, it was the first city in Britain actually to do that. That makes sense, as it as Edinburgh being the city with the most overcrowding, or one of the most mm. famously crowded cities that they would have the first fire brigade. Mm. This is not a Scottish history anecdote, but I feel it deserves to be brought up here. Do you know the story of Marcus Crassus and his fire brigade? No, I don't. Just, he was one of the... The, one of the three members of the first triumvirate, which included Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. And Crassus was there because he was Rome's richest man. And one of the things that he did to get rich or, or, or to increase his wealth was that he, he, empl he had a fire brigade, uh, a private fire brigade, and when people's houses were on fire, they would all turn up, and then Crassus would demand uh, to, that the owners of the house sold him the building before he would actually put it out uh, so you had a choice between leaving seeing your house burn down uh, or sell it to Crassus so there you go <laughs> Crassus is right presumably yeah. yeah but anyway back to um, back back to Scottish <laughs> history there were some other problems associated we've, we've talked about fire but also um, building collapse seems to have been an issue as well at the period yeah I think that's right um, in fact I think in many ways you could say it's almost surprising that more of them didn't collapse hmm. you know when you're talking about tenement buildings that can be up to 13 or 14 stories high um, I suppose there were one or two mitigating factors um, first of all I think generally speaking when they got to the top floors they did start to uh, construct them more of wood rather than of stone, which of course less, lessened the weight on the entire building. Uh, the fact that the buildings are built so close together means that they are sort of uh, inter-supporting, should we say. Mm. They would support one another. I think if you tried to put up a tenement building that was 13 storeys high and just stand it by itself, then you might run into serious problems. Mm, but they used to um, lean on each other. Well, that's right. <laughs> but then again, you, you know, you think about it. You, you look at medieval cathedrals. You know, they had the technology, they were able to you know, produce mm -hmm. buildings like that. So really the idea of producing tenement buildings that leaned against each other, you know, was that really going to be techno technologically much more challenging? I doubt it. Mm. 
Um, however, you, no, you're quite right. There were a number of collapses. I think possibly one of the best known ones was down near John Knox's house in Paisley Close. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the the, the, the heave war. Uh, I'm no deed yet. That was the story of the young man who was trapped in it. But certainly that building collapsed, and uh, I think they hauled out everybody they thought they could haul out. And eventually this voice came from the depth somewhere or other. And it was supposed to be, heave a war, lads, and no deed yet. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this, this lad was pulled out of the, uh, the remains of the building. That's one that's sort of gone down in legend and, and history. Um, there must have been other collapses as well, obviously. The, you said it must have been pretty rotten as a if you were poor. Yeah. Um, but the other the, the other point about Edinburgh is that the the poor and the rich lived tooth by jowl right up next to each other. Um, they did. With the um, this melting pot nature of the city, mm-hmm. that the the poor and the rich would have interacted uh, all the time, and uh, the the rich man, Sir James Crichton, in our own building, would have had to. Uh, come down out of his flat and walk through the lawn market, which would have been overcrowded and all that. He would have had to pass by and interact with all sorts of different people, many of the Edinburgh's poor. Do you think that that had an impact on the way that people interacted, the way that the city worked? I I think it must have done. You know, when you get so many people living in such close proximity, you know, you're talking about, you know, maybe 25,000, 30,000 people being packed into no more than half a mile. And the idea that in that close proximity, the rich and the poor could somehow or other avoid one another, uh, well, it's just not, not practical. I mean, there's, there's some lovely stories actually told about the, well, one particular form of interaction. Um, there used to be caddies out there in the high street. I mean, a caddy, well could perform all sorts of tasks. I mean, we think of a caddy nowadays where somebody carries somebody's golf clubs. Well, the original idea was that somebody sort of helped you out or ran an errand or something like that for you. They used to have the water caddies who positioned themselves out there in the high street. Uh, And if a servant was lucky enough to have a master who would pay a penny or two, they would summon a water caddy who would come up and collect the jugs or the barrels or whatever they were going to collect the water in would go and collect the water and, and then bring them back up and would save the servant going up and down the stairs. One particular form of interaction with the, with the wealthier class um, used to come where the, the wealthier... I mean, the amount of alcohol... Was, we, we complain today about Scots and alcohol, <laughs> but that was nothing compared to the way that things were in the 17th century, where vast quantities of alcohol were consumed. I mean, you, you hear stories of wealthiest people sitting down and meeting over, you know, discuss business or whatever it might be, and quite happily, you know, four or five of them going through uh, anything up to sort of ten bottles of port. <laughs> you, know, port. You, you can't understand how they could possibly, how they could have coped with this. <laughs> um, but they did drink copious amounts, and of course it naturally had an effect on them, and they would stagger out of whatever um, tavern it was at whatever time in the morning, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. And here's where the caddies came in very, very useful, because the caddies actually then would make sure they got home safely. They would actually attach themselves to some wealthy person who would quite happily pay them, you know, to, uh, to, to take them uh, yes, back home especially again. Especially after 12 bottles of port. Well, exactly. Well, I, mean, I may well have been exaggerating, but at the same time, as I say, copious amounts of, of alcohol were consumed. And so these people were not in any fit state actually to find their way home. 
Uh, and caddies had the reputation of uh, being per- perfectly trustworthy. You know, they wouldn't mug the poor chap or anything like that. Um, and they got used to the fact that there were certain people who would leave taverns at particular times, <laughs> and they would attach themselves to them, and, th- and, and they would take them home uh, and would get rewarded for doing that. 17th century taxi drivers. Well, it, it was a little bit like that. Um, so, I mean, there you get, if you like, a sort of interaction, mm. you know, very often between uh, the wealthy and the, uh, and the poor. You know, I, I don't suppose you could have lived in Edinburgh at that time without being affected by it in mm. some way or other. As I said at the beginning, you are one of the most popular tour guides <laughs> here, and it's these little these anecdotes which I think make your tour so interesting. The one that I recall from the tour is the one about the pigs. Oh, yes. Um, would you mind telling us the story of the pigs? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. This was the, the cloth maker who used to rent the shop here in Gladstone's Land. And, uh, yes, I mean, I, I don't know how, whether this is true or whether it's apocryphal, to be quite honest. Um, the, but this, the story basically is that he used to keep uh, two pigs, and he stationed these two pigs at the front of his shop. The reason being that he wanted to create a nice clean area for his customers to stand. Because, of course, in those days when you were shopping, you were just standing outside the shop. You didn't go into the shop at all. Uh, And so protected by the archway, um, just outside Gladstone's land, you were protected from the worst of the weather. Uh, You'd stand outside, you'd choose the cloth that you wanted, you'd have it measured out for you, um, and so you would purchase in that way. But the thing was that the lawn market was full of market stalls. Uh, and the lawn market, actually, the, the name the lawn market really came from land market. Uh, and the idea was that on the stalls out there, um, farmers would bring in the produce of the land and they would sell it on the stalls out there. But of course, if you're bringing in food, half of it's going to finish up on the ground. Uh, it's going to mix in with all the muck that there is there anyway. And basically, Riddick's idea was that um, the pigs would then snuffle up all the rubbish that had fallen off the market stalls, and that would create a nice clean area for the customers to stand. Of course, what he didn't take into account is what goes in one end has got to come out the other. Uh, and so the idea that this was going to create a nice clean area, I, I can't see as being terribly effective <laughs> in the end of the day. Are there any other uh, s- stories or particular parts of the tour that that you like to tell uh, yourself, oh, your, your favourite bits? Well, it's always quite interesting, quite entertaining uh, to tell people about Gardy Lou. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go into the kitchen up there and you actually introduce them to the idea that there's a toilet in the kitchen, first of all, they're horrified by that to start with. You know, the idea you have a, ki- you know, a toilet in the kitchen. But then, but then when you, they start to understand that you know, going to the toilet was a very different experience mm. in the sense that people were much less reserved in their use of this thing than, than we are today. Um, the idea that every room is going to have a receptacle of some sort uh, and then it's going to be up to the servant to dispose of the contents. You know, there's no chain to pull, there's no button to press. Um, and uh, that this led in the end, you know, to cut a long story short, um, to basically chuck it out the window. I don't know the answer to this one, whether it was legal or not, um, whether there were specific times, but as far as one can gather, certainly one of the times when it was common practice uh, was late at night, you know, between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. Um, I mean, you wouldn't be daffed up during the day, you know, to open up a window onto the high street and chuck the contents out over the heads of people shopping at the stalls, you know, that'd be madness. Uh, So I think it would have been late at night. 
Um, and then you would open up a window, generally speaking, that gave onto one of the closes or wines, not out into the high street itself. And then, you know, the shout of Garde Lou would come up, which really comes from the French, Garde Lou. In other words, look out for the water. Uh, and then you would chuck the contents out. I think most people who lived in Edinburgh at that time knew that really it wasn't terribly safe uh, to walk down a closer a wine between 10 and 11 o'clock at night, and you would avoid it if you possibly could. But apparently, if you had to, uh, you yourself put up a cry before you went down of hold your hand. And that was supposed to tell anybody up above that was about to deposit the contents uh, into the, uh, the closer wine. Please hang on just a moment until I've gone past. So my understanding is that very much during the 17th century, it wasn't, it wasn't illegal. It, it was frowned upon in certain places. But it, wasn't it wasn't actually illegal. Um, but actually it was, well, it was made illegal at certain times in the 1740s. Oh, right. I've been meaning to go and double check this, but there mm. is a bit of legislation that comes in called the Act of Nastiness. Okay. Um, and my understanding is, but I, I do need to check, is that that um, basically prohibited it happening during daylight hours, essentially. Right, right. Um, but you could still do it at night. Do you know if this this practice, uh, well, firstly throwing throwing the, the the refuse out the window, and then this phrase "Gardy Lou," is that a particular? Is that a, is that was that particular to Edinburgh, or do you, do you know if if people said "Gardy Lou" in other places as well when they did that? I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it was more widespread, hmm. because well, the reason I say that largely is because uh, very often when I do a tour. And I mentioned Gardy Lou. People know what I'm talking about, mm. almost no matter where they come from. So I suspect that this was a, a, you know, a fairly common expression. And the fact that it came from the French in the first place makes me think that you know, yeah. this could even be European mm-hmm. uh, in terms of its uh, origin rather than necessarily Scottish. Mm. I think, certainly my experience is it seems to vary a little bit. I, I've definitely heard the phrase elf, elsewhere. Um, but um, as someone that comes from York... A lot of the, the buildings were actually built with an overhang, yes. so there was less oh. concern about shouting out because you actually walked along the street under the overhang, so they could mm. hit you with whatever they were throwing out the window. Mm-hmm. Do they still have some of those overhangs? The uh, so, you can yeah, absolutely. So it's got um, a beautiful medieval street called the Shambles in York, um, oh, it's lovely, the which Shambles. you can walk all the way along, yes. um, and it, you can see it was actually it was where the butchers were at um, the Shambles, yeah. uh, and you can you can see the the buildings all the way along and the overhangs. So how long have you been a volunteer here? About eight years now, something like that. And you do, uh, you do, the, you do the tours just w- w- one day a week, is that right? Yeah, I do three of them on a, on a Monday. And why, why do you like volunteering for the National Trust? I'm going to assume that you do. <laughs> <laughs> be a little bit awkward if you didn't. Well, <laughs> you said, oh, I hate it. <laughs> well, no, obviously I don't hate it. <laughs> no, I do enjoy it. Um... Uh, I think for a number of reasons. First of all, I'm a historian. You know, I like history. It's as simple as that. And to get involved in something which is historical, particularly a building like Gladstone's Land. Um, And my interest in history has always centred around the lives of ordinary people. Mm. Um, I mean, for example, military history leaves me completely cold. 
the lives of ordinary people, though, and the way that they used to live, be they rich or poor for that matter, um, I find that much more interesting. And Gladstone's Land is one of these places where you can really get into it. You know, you can talk about rich people, you can talk about poor people and the way that they used to live in those times. So, I mean, that's my first reason, I suppose, for enjoying coming in here. Um, the second, I, mean, I like be meeting people. And you meet people from all over the world here. That's what I like about it. I mean, I remember a few months back now, one of my the tours that I did, I actually had representatives from each of the continents. <laughs> I don't suppose that will ever happen again. Wow. Um, but it was a lovely experience. Uh, and so to enjoy, you know, to meet people and to I hopefully engage them so they go away at the end of that tour thinking, yeah, I enjoyed that. And actually enjoyed it is more important than I've gone away having learnt something. Mm -hmm. If they've learnt something, well, that's great. But if they've gone through this and think, yeah, it was worth coming in here today, it was worth paying 10 quid or whatever it is, I think that's the important part of it as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I suppose those are my main reasons for doing it. I mean, another important part, and the very important part as far as I'm concerned about volunteering um, at Gladstone's Land, is the fact that as a volunteer, you really do feel that your contribution is appreciated. Uh, you feel valued. Um, and that's very important because as a volunteer, you're not getting paid for what you do. You do it because you really want to do it. But at the same time, as a volunteer, it's quite nice to get something back uh, in terms of feeling appreciated. Now, that doesn't need to be very much. Uh, it can be something like a smile and a welcome when you come in at the beginning of your shift and somebody saying thank you to you when you leave. Uh, it's also important, very important to volunteers that they know what's going on, uh, that there's communication, that people actually uh, who are employed full-time, if there are changes to be made, um, they actually tell you what's going on. Uh, that the opportunity is there perhaps to meet other volunteers um, in the coffee mornings, for example, that have been set up, um, and also the various lectures which have been arranged. Um, these are all such positive things as far as being part of, the, should we say, the volunteering community is concerned. Uh, and that's another reason, personally, why I enjoy coming to Gladstone's Land and volunteering here. Well, that is nice to hear. Yes. <laughs> Me too. Um, finally, the last question of the... Uh, of, of, of... <laughs> Some may say the most important. Yes, well, um, we've been asking people, asking our, our, our guests so far, uh, this question, which is about the, this, our, our fictional historical dinner party. If you were able to invite three or four figures from history or, or, or current affairs that you'd really like to, to meet and, and, and have at your dinner party, who, who would you have? Well, yes, I gave you sort of three or four possibilities, um, two of them still living, uh, two of them uh, now dead, uh, one of them well dead. Uh, <laughs> as far as the living ones are concerned, um, my first guest would be Billy Connolly. <laughs> um, not just because I think he's one of the funniest men uh, that I've ever heard, but because I think he is a genuine philosopher. I think many of the things that he comes out with give such an insight into the Scottish psyche that very few other people actually touch upon. He came up with a very interesting thing just recently when somebody asked him, you know, you've made a great success of your life and all the rest of it when you came from nothing. He said, I didn't come from nothing. I came from something. 
Mm. And actually, that was a very telling point. A lot of people would look at his background and say, well, you know, you've achieved all this despite that. I think he would probably say, I achieved all that, this, because of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, he's a real person. Um, and as I say, not just a comedian, one of the funniest comedians I've ever seen. And I think probably he's funny because he's so observant. He talks about people uh, and their everyday life. I mean, he used to talk about... Um, He's got a lovely story about the Cumberlands. I don't know if you know the story about the Cumberlands. Well, this was him living um, at the time with his, with his aunt. And the people that lived next door in the tenement they were in in Drum Chapel uh, was a family called the Cumberlands. And I think there was something like nine Cumberland children altogether. And the Cumberland father came home one day from his work and announced to his wife that he was about to nip off to the pub. And she said, no, you're bloody well not going off to the pub, not unless until you get all these kids in off the street. Because Billy said in those days, you used to go out and play in the street and you'd be out there all day. Nobody would know where you were. But in the evening, uh, Father Cumberland was supposed to go and collect all the children, <laughs> get them into the house, and then he might be allowed to go off to the pub. <laughs> and so, in fact, because there were nine of them, and the father was out at work all day. He didn't necessarily know who were Cumberland children and who were not. <laughs> he would just gather nine kids in off the street. And Billy said on one occasion that he and his sister were hauled in off the street along with the other Cumberland children. And then she finished up in this big bed <laughs> <laughs> along with any number of other Cumberland children. And they were only discovered because his aunt found two Cumberland children actually wandering around the street. <laughs> who should have been in bed by this time, and then discovered that actually Billy and his sister had finished up in this big bed in the Cumberland house. And well, that's great. it was that sort of... You know, when somebody says to him, you came from nothing, and he says, no, I came from something. Those are the sort of experiences that he was talking about. And he actually said something else interesting. He said, people say, you know, we came from a poor background. He said, we didn't know we were poor. We weren't poor. This was the way we lived. And it's that sort of humour mixed in with the philosophy of it, I, I think that would make him, you know, a wonderful sort of uh, dinner companion. Well, that's great. And I think he's that, he's our first Scot, too. Mm-hmm. We've had a number of um, medieval uh, English and French characters, haven't we? But uh, certainly our most prominent Scot on the, mm-hmm. on the, the, at the party. So. Well. OK, so we have Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly. Um, anyway, my other characters, who else did I have there? Nelson Mandela. I think he speaks for himself. You know, I don't really believe there's very much I can say mm. that other people haven't said already. And what so much impressed me about him was, was not so much the fact that he was prepared to suffer so much for what he believed in and for the rights of black people, uh, but the fact that you know, when he got the opportunity, his message was one of reconciliation. It would be so tempting, having spent so many years being mistreated by the state in South Africa and being imprisoned and treated so badly for so long to have said, right, I'm get my own back here. But there was never any of that about him. That's a very good thought. Um, Martin Luther. Uh-huh. Well, I'm an ecclesiastical historian mm-hmm. originally. Uh, it'd be difficult to leave him out because I think as a person that um, he led what I think probably, I mean, it's always subjective this, but... Um, I think possibly is the greatest revolution, certainly in European history, if not in world history. In terms of its wide-ranging and long-lasting impact. Oh, yeah. 
It was absolutely huge, and I don't just mean in religious terms, I mean in political terms as well. The very idea that the ordinary person might have a say in their lives. I mean, throughout medieval times, ordinary people did as they were told. It was as simple as that. They had no say, whether it was in the state, the church, or whatever. And along comes Martin Luther and says, well, actually, no, you do have a say. What he turned round, not just in religious terms, but also, I think, in political terms and in social terms, the way that people actually viewed themselves. I mean, he didn't do it by himself, obviously. Um, mm. The Renaissance undoubtedly helped in terms of preparing the way for this. But I think the, the long-lasting effect of what he... Um, so how do we get on? Oh yes, that, this was Martin Luther, this was Martin Luther. <laughs> and uh, the Reformation, and I think your individualism—that the Reformation is the, the the birth of of the modern notion of individual um, identity, isn't it? I think Which yes, is, I think that's true. Although I, again, I think the Renaissance encouraged mm. that idea as well. Um, yeah, I think that's all I can say about Martin Luther. Really, no, my, la my no, last one was um, was Tom Devine. Mm. Uh, who I've got a lot of time for. I think probably the outstanding Scottish historian of today. Um, I've just, I've, I've always had an interest in the Highland Clearances, and it's always been such an emotive subject as far as Scots are concerned. You know, these dreadful landowners driving the people off the land. Uh, Tom Devine's book, you can pick up as an ordinary person, even if you don't know anything about the Clearances already. And although he's a great scholar, he's also great at putting across. Uh, a particular point of view, and I would love to sit him down at a dinner party and talk to him about it. <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be wonderful. Well, Billy Connolly, Martin Luther, Nelson Mandela, and Tom Divine. Well, that's a, that's a, good, a good sounds selection. like a good addition yeah. to me. <laughs> and um, this has been a really fascinating talk, uh, David. Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you for coming. Yeah, you're very welcome. Well, I must say that was extremely interesting, wasn't it? It was ab absolutely fascinating. You were absolutely right. I feel yeah. like I've learned a lot today. Yes, a great person to 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 to, to represent Gladstone's land, mm -hmm. apart from anything else. So, so that's oh, that was great. Right, your emails now. We have an email uh, in from from listener Georgie in Kinross who asks a question which fits in quite well with what we've been talking about. Do we know the names? and or occupations of the people who lived in the building and how? Gosh, well, that is a big question. Um, the answer is not everyone that lived here, but we do definitely know some of the people that live here. So we have some tax records, um, which give us a really good glimpse uh, into who was in the building in the 17th century. So there's one from the 1630s. Um, which gives us a, a really good overview, and that's one that we base um, some of our tour on. Uh, so we know on the ground floor there was a gentleman called John Riddick. He is running a shop, um, selling all sorts of uh, luxury goods out of there. And, and didn't he ran, run the tavern as well? He, well, it was run by a woman called Isabel who was in his employment, and that was being run out of the basement that we're currently in at the moment. Um, and that was a little bit posher than an alehouse in that it sold wines as well, imported wines. Uh, then on the first floor, we have uh, Lord Crichton, um, and then who is a little bit scandalous, and I think we'll be talking about at some point. Uh, then the second and third floors, we've got William Struthers, who is the minister of St Giles Cathedral. Um, and then up on the fourth floor, we have the Gladstone family themselves with their five children. 
Uh, so we have that nice, really nice snapshot. We know um, much later we have, um, again, further glimpses in the 19th century, 20th century. We know there was all sorts of merchants worked out of the properties. There was a pub called the Rabbi Burns here uh, in the 20th century. There was a dairy um, in the 1930s. We know we had a coffee house on site at one point. So we do have these these bits of history but we don't have a complete history of the building it would be possible or possibly partly possible going through the the annual census records mm-hmm. i think particularly after 1840 there was an a 10 yearly census which records some detail mm-hmm. and you can look that we've looked that up on um in the the national records of scotland a bit and it tells you roughly who was living the names of the people who mm-hmm. were living there. But one thing that we found particularly confusing is that the street numbers seem to yes. have changed. So, yeah, the, the number that the property is has actually changed, um, which <laughs> makes things a lot more makes confusing. It, so, so we're actually... We, we're 477 Lawn Market now, but... Is that right? I, so. <laughs> I would have to go and check. But at the at the time, in some 1900, uh, the, the, the census records say that 477... Lawn Market is listed as Lady Stairs Close, and I think it's 489 Lawn Market, which is called Gladstone's Land, mm-hmm. so we're not entirely sure. Anyway, so uh, I guess the answer there is is sort of. <laughs> yes, I think that, that's the best we can do. So that's about it for today. Uh, next time we've got our, uh, our, um, our Reformation episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure some of you will have seen the recent f- film about Mary, Queen of Scots, um, which which um, which has come out and to, to popular acclaim, and uh, or perhaps I don't know. And um, and so next week we've got one of our volunteers, uh, Nicole, uh, coming on the podcast uh, to talk about Mary, Queen of Scots mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the Reformation in. In General, Edinburgh. And partic- yeah, particularly how it affected Edinburgh and how our painted ceilings tie into that, yes. potentially. So um, so there you go. That's it. That's, we'll- uh, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Gladstones Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was David Hamill, and you also heard a clip from Evelyn's tour. Our music is Apollinaris Inclicti by Anibali's Stabile, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones land. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next time.